0: Uh, This is message number 30 uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. And I don't expect anyone would remember this, but uh, I opened uh, last September with a quote by Martin Luther. And the quote by Martin Luther uh, went like this. It said, The epistle, and he's the letter, uh, is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Now, Martin Luther uh, was a great uh, theologian, a great pastor, a great scholar, a great reformer. Uh, And he's making the statement here, and I read it months and months ago, that uh, this letter, this epistle of Romans is that significant. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about as I've wrestled and thought through this quote many, many times, uh, was this simple question of, wow, the one who wrote this letter, his life must have been a a pretty inspirational life, a pretty phenomenal life. If he penned this, certainly led by the Spirit of God, but the Apostle Paul, who is this man? And I started thinking about, well, was he always the Apostle Paul? And I wanted to really ask you the question of, we've been studying Romans, uh, but what was the Apostle Paul's life like, say about 25 years before he sat down uh, to write this letter, which Martin Luther said is just, it's cornerstone to the New Testament. It's that significant that Christians everywhere should commit it to memory and let it be the bread and soul every day. So what was Paul doing 25 years before he wrote this phenomenally Transformational letter. And I love when you ask a question and scripture answers it for you. So in the book of Acts, chapter 8, it gives a picture of what the apostle Paul's life was like 25 years prior. And Acts, chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, says this And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. And his death, meaning uh, there was a disciple by the name of Stephen who was making a a bold profession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, and that they had crucified him. And so they didn't like that, and so they threw stones at Stephen uh, to the point of his death. Now, I can't ever imagine standing by watching someone get stoned, like huge, huge stones dropped on them. And I can never imagine personally, and I hope you couldn't imagine it either, standing by with your arms crossed, kind of smiling, nodding your head like, yes, yes, this is a very good thing that's happening right here. Oh, that was a big rock. I I hope that one hurt. Like I cannot imagine giving approval to such a brutal death. But Paul, and before he was Paul, his name was Saul. Uh, When he met Jesus, Jesus gave him a new name called Paul. But before he met Jesus, this is what this guy was doing. If someone was testifying to, to Jesus, to the Christ, that he was the Messiah, he was approving of this person's death. And he goes on and says, "'On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church.'" Paul's mission, or Saul's mission, was, I want to destroy this thing called the church. I want to destroy anyone who is aligning themselves with this person, Jesus. My mission, my aim, my purpose in life is to utterly ravish, as some translations say, and destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Can you imagine meeting this man, before he met Christ? I mean, this would be a scary individual. He was going house to house, just looking for someone who had something to do with Jesus, and he would literally drag them off and put them in prison. Now, as I was thinking about Paul, what on earth happened to this man that there would be such a profound transformation in this man's life? What could possibly have happened to this man that he would go from approving someone's brutal death to dragging men and women off to prison to now being the biggest champion for the cause of Christ? Like, how do you go from that to this over here, from trying to destroy the church to being its greatest champion? And I don't want to oversimplify this here, but... I can honestly just say, well, it's Jesus. When he met the person, when he met the man, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus, everything changed. He was no longer the same person. He was no longer the same person who was filled with hatred and jealousy and envy over this new thing called Christianity. He was a brand new man. Desires completely changed. From an arrogant, prideful Pharisee to a man who was just was marked by humility. Now, I want you to think uh, for a moment, fast forward in your life one year, okay? Think about where you will be one year from today. And I'm not asking you necessarily to think about your situation and what your situation will look like, whether you'll you know, have kids or you'll be married or have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a new job. I'm not talking about where you will be situationally But I want you to think about a year from now, who will you be? Like, what will your personhood or what will your life look like? What will your character look like? And so if you can at all envision, gosh, where do I want to be one year from now? Do you think you'll be any different than you sit here today? Do you think any of your behaviors or attitudes or actions or reactions will be any different a year from now than they are today? Do you think any of the things that you're currently insecure with, any of the things that you're currently fearful of, or any of the things that you're currently have doubts or anxieties or worries, will any of those be any different a year from now? Will you be free of insecurity, anxiety, and worries and fears? So this is a question, do you think you'll be different? Now, the reality is, a year can come and go very, very quickly, and as you look forward or fast forward to one year from now, I hope that all of us, I really do, I hope that all of us would say something along the lines of, I really desire to mature. I really desire to grow in my character, in my personhood. I really desire to grow in my relationship with Jesus. I really desire to at least begin a relationship with Jesus, or try to figure out what this whole thing called Christianity is all about. So I I hope that that would be a desire that each of us would experience some level of a progressive transformation. I feel like it would be tragic if we gathered all of us one year from now, and there was no change. There was no maturity. There was no growth. There was no development. So if you would say, yeah, I do desire that, then your next question is obviously, how? How? How do I change? How do I mature? How do I grow? How do I learn? How do I be able to put these things away, anxieties and fears and insecurities and doubts and hurts and wounds? How do I be done with that? So one year from now, I'm just walking in complete freedom and in complete joy, not confused as to who God is, not confused as to who I am, and not confused as to what my life is to be all about. Now, as I mentioned Few minutes ago, we're starting Romans chapter 12. And in many ways, the next uh, about eight weeks uh, from today until when we finish Romans is going to answer this question. Paul has laid out his theology of how we are to think rightly about God. But now, Paul, in the next few chapters of Romans, uh, is going to lay out for us well, how do I live rightly in light of who God is? So here's a couple questions. How do we live lives where ongoing transformation is a reality? This is a question that we're going to wrestle with. How do we live lives where ongoing transformation, it's a reality? How do we live lives that are ultimately honoring to God? Like, would it be your desire to say, I want God to look at my life and say, that is a life that honors him? How do we live lives that reflect the reality of who God is and what God has done? If God is the creator, the sustainer, the provi- if, God is, if God is God, how can my life actually reflect that I know him personally and have a relationship with him? How do we live lives that inspire others towards God? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing that someone could just observe you and say, I, I want to know God, just by hanging out with you for an hour and hearing how you talk I've I've been encouraged, I've been motivated, I've been inspired to know this God that you know. Now, all good questions and all these questions we're going to walk through and wrestle with over the next uh, few weeks, but anytime you ask a how question, you need to back up a little bit and say, well, why? Why are we even asking those questions? And one of the things I thought about, at least, was why didn't Paul stop at Romans 11? Like, why do we even need Romans 12 or Romans 13 or 14, 15, and 16? He had already said everything that he needed to say about God, and he's revealed some amazing realities and truths about the character of God and what God has done and how God has made it possible for humanity to have a relationship with him. He's talked about God's sovereignty and faithfulness, God's patience and mercy and kindness and love. He's talked about God's wrath. He's laid out everything there is to know about God in Romans chapter one through verse 11. And he actually finishes in uh, chapter 11 with this great verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Just stop right there, like you're on a high note. Why go any further in Romans 12? And I think what Paul's desire is, is not that we would just know something about God, not that we would just have information about who God is, and not so we could you know, win a, a Jeopardy contest if God was ever, a question was asked about God. I just don't think Paul was concerned so much about if we had right information about God, but now Paul is concerned that this information we now have is that our lives would begin to reflect what we now know of God. In other words, our lives would reflect the truth about who God is, what God has done, and what God is still doing. Well, whether we like it or not, this is, I think, a hard truth, but the way you live every single day is really a statement or a testimony to what you really believe about God. So just literally how you walk through your day, from the moment you wake up to every conversation that takes place throughout the day, to every thought you have, every interaction you have, till when you close your eyes. All of those moments in between, all of those conversations, all of those decisions, all of those actions, reactions, all of those things packed into your day, however long your day might be, is ultimately a reflection of what you believe about God. So I think the hard question is we ask ourselves is if someone were to observe you for just one day, what would their conclusion about God be? Not what would their conclusion be about you, not like, wow, that, 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 that guy's awesome, he's funny, he's, he's whatever, you fill in the blank there. Not what would their conclusion or statement or testimony be about you, but what would their statement or testimony or conclusion be about God? Now, to me, it's a pretty awesome thing and then actually a very humbling thing to know that I, you, we have the opportunity to inspire people towards God just by the way we live. Now, Paul went on from Romans 11, 1 through 11, into Romans chapter 12, because he just he didn't want us thinking correctly about God. He just didn't want us to know what to say about God and to say the right things about God. He wanted our knowledge of God, our theology, to shape how we live. And this is the big point of Romans 12 through the end of Romans, is that everything that has happened so far in Romans has been to shape our theology so that we will begin to live in light of who God is, what God's done, what God is doing. Now, I'm going to start in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and just read the first word. First word is simply, therefore. Now, this is a pretty big, huge adverb. It's a very big word. And anytime in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, you come across this word, just stop. Stop and be like, okay, this is a big moment because the therefore means I'm supposed to do something in light of what's been said. So not only do I pay close attention to what's about to be said, but I have to back up a little bit and say, well, what has been said? Because the therefore is is there for a reason. And so Paul, Romans 12, verse 1, says, therefore. Now, I realize some of you have not been here since September when we launched this series. And I wanted to give you a snapshot of literally just a handful of verses that, in my humble opinion, give just a great picture of the therefore, of the amazing things that God has done. Here's a few verses. Romans 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 24. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith In Jesus Christ to all who believe. You have to understand that this is an enormous statement for those who believe that they had to figure out how to be righteous on their own by works and observing rules and traditions. This is an amazing thing that God's provided a righteousness for us. He goes on, There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What an incredibly freeing verse that we are justified, declared righteous, made right with God because of faith in Christ. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified or made right with God, declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. It should revolutionize my life to know that I can have peace with God. I don't have to walk around feeling insecure or fearful, as it were, because I can have peace with God. Not in my works, not in my efforts or my attempts, but by faith in Christ. Romans 5.18, Consequently, just as the result of one sin or trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. That's a verse that says, because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished, you place your faith in him, you have life. Life now, life eternal. Romans 6, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but catch this, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but God has a gift to give you. And it's not a gift to give you because you've deserved it or earned it or merited it somehow. Uh, He's a gracious God, and He has a gift, and the gift is called life, eternal, forgiveness of sins, peace with Him. Romans 8.1, I love this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no room for guilt. There's no room for shame. There's no place to hide from God because you feel condemned by God. If you know Christ, there's no condemnation. Why? Because Christ paid it all. He totally, absolutely covered you when he went to the cross. And through faith in him, there's no condemnation. So the therefore is more than just a simple adverb. Paul wants us to call to mind everything that he's so, uh, shared so far about who God is and what God has done. Just pause for a second here, because I don't know how often in life we just pause to take a timeout, as it were. We give other people timeouts, but not ourselves. I just want you to reflect. How amazing has God been to you? How gracious has God been to you? How loving has God been to you? How faithful has God been to you? And I know I've said this before many times sitting in this chair. If you ever doubt the, the goodness and kindness and love and affection that God has for you, just look right behind me. Just pause for a moment and think, my goodness, how amazing is it that I can even know God in a real way, in a personal way, that I can walk with him, that I can have confidence that he is my good heavenly father. That is absolutely amazing. And so Paul goes on in Romans 12:1 and says, "'Therefore.'" I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So Paul just doesn't want us to remember the things that God has done. Paul is actually urging, exhorting. He's calling us to respond to what God has done. Now think about it like this. If you just won the lottery, Say the lottery was a uh, hundred million dollars. That seems to be a lot of money. Okay, you win the lottery. Would I have to urge you, like, hey, go turn your ticket in? That's that's you know that's a few lunches at Chipotle for us. <laughs> like, would I have to urge you at all? Would I have to convince you, dude, you got the winning ticket? Like, go to the lottery office and show them and redeem what you've won. Okay. Some of you might think the lottery is a silly example, so let's make it personal. Say I have two free tickets to the Game 6 Bruins tomorrow night. (laughs) And I say, two tickets for you to go. You can bring me or whoever else you want. (laughs) Would I have to urge you, would I have to compel you to go and take these tickets? Would I have to fight you and say, no, please, my goodness, they're front row, If there is, I don't know how the stadium works there, but (laughs) it's by the the plexiglass. Like I I wouldn't have to urge you to redeem a winning ticket or to take a ticket. So as I was thinking about this, why on earth would Paul have to use such strong language of I'm urging you to respond to, I'm I'm compelling you, I'm exhorting you to respond to what God has done. I think Paul knows something about humanity that we are so prone to forget the mercies of God in our life. It just takes one bad day, takes one small storm, one gust of wind, as it were, and we get toppled over and be like, well, God doesn't give a rip about me. One bad conversation, and it throws us into a tizzy, And how quickly we forget the mercies and kindness of God that he's demonstrated to us in Christ. So a question for you, do you believe that God has been merciful? This is the word, do you believe that God's been merciful to you? I think most people would say, well, God's been loving, God's been gracious, he's been generous, he's been kind, he's been faithful, he's always provided, But what we often fail to realize is all of those things are rooted in that God has been, first and foremost, merciful to us. Meaning, I don't deserve anything from God. I don't deserve anything except God's wrath to to me, towards me, because I'm a rebellious, hard-hearted sinner. That's what I deserve. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve affection. I don't deserve anything that God's given me. I don't even deserve breath. In my lungs, I don't deserve food. I don't deserve anything. So do you believe that God's been merciful to you? If you believe that you deserve something, then you're going to have a hard time saying that God's been merciful to you. But if you take the posture of, wow, I don't deserve anything, then it has absolutely freed us up to respond to God, not in order to get something from him, but because I've already received it. A lot of people have a hard time receiving the mercies of God in their life because they're so busy trying to earn them or do good things or be a good person or do good deeds or do spiritual things that will somehow make you impressive to God. We don't deserve anything, but God yet in his mercy towards us has given us all things. And I literally mean all things. He's given us life and life eternal. And I just love that when I finally start to understand, wow, God has just been merciful, I can receive that. I don't have to do things trying to get God to do something for me because he's already been merciful to me. So in view of God's mercy to me, how would you respond to God? If God has been merciful to you, which he has to all of us, Well, how do you respond to that? What should your life lived look like in light of God's incredible mercy to you? By the way, this is huge. How you answer this one question will begin to shape how you live life with God. How you respond to the mercy of God in your life, how you answer that will shape how you live your life with God, how you understand yourself, how you understand the world around you. Well, according to Paul, the appropriate response to the mercies of God is that we would offer ourselves or we would present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. He uses the word bodies, but the language here would say he's bodies means all of you. That we would present all of me, I would offer all of me to all of God. Now, I know in our culture kind of the idea of sacrifice is a little bit uh, lost on us. If you were living in the first century times, they would totally get the sacrificial system. Now, I think when we hear the word sacrifice, we think of something, man, I have to sacrifice for God. I've got to give this up. He's going to take away from me the thing that I love the most, and I can't do that anymore, and that's just a bummer, and that's just the way God works. He takes away everything that I enjoy, everything that I love, and here you go, God, uh, as if he's like a cosmic wet blanket. That is not what a living sacrifice to the mercies of God looks like. So it's not necessarily we are losing something. It's more that we are expressing something. So when you hear this word of in Romans 12, uh, where it says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices. Please see that as not that you're giving something up, but that you are expressing something to God because of what he's done. And you do so with this this joy, with this deep level of gratitude. Now, practically speaking, what does it look like to offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices? And I think the first thing that we need to know is it's complete. It's absolute. it's, It's total. If you're a fan of hymns, then you'll probably know the the great hymn called The, The Wondrous Cross. Isaac Watts wrote it. And there's this great line in this song that really is a great picture of what it means to offer ourselves completely, totally, wholly to God. He says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God's mercies God's love, so amazing, demands all of me, all of my soul, all of my life, all of me. I think what tends to happen is we're good with giving a part of ourselves to God, and then we stop. God, you can have this, okay? I'm willing to part ways with this, but I'm not willing to let go of this dream. God, you can have this but I'm not willing to let go of this relationship. Because God, you clearly don't know what this relationship is going to do for me, or you clearly don't know, God, if I'm able to fulfill this dream I've had ever since however long. So God, you can have this, but I'm keeping this real close. Can you imagine if God responded to us the way that we respond to God? I'll give you half. You can have half of my love, half of my mercy, You can have, you know, I don't know what this would look like, but part of my son. You can have good life here, but forget eternal. Can you imagine if God held back from us all of himself, but yet we have the audacity to respond to God and say, don't touch that. Don't touch that dream. Don't touch that relationship. Don't touch that career. Don't touch this. You fill in the blank. A great verse we looked at a few months ago was Romans 8.32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That just cuts me to know that God didn't hold back anything. His own son, his one and only son, Pure and spotless, blameless, without sin, didn't, with, didn't withhold his son from us. So, if we are to offer ourselves to God, you need to know that it is a total thing, it is an absolute thing. There's no, well, I'll offer myself to God on Sundays, I will diligently show up to church, and I'll, I'll sing, and I'll listen, I'll, I'll even give my tithes and offerings. But then as soon as I walk out of 16 Wheeling Ave, I'm back on my own. You need to know that the appropriate response to the mercies and love and kindness of God is that a total offering of ourselves to him. Now, I want to be clear, and I've already mentioned this, but I don't want you to miss it, is we are not talking about a total commitment to God in order to get something from God. He has already given us all things. I'm talking about the appropriate response to a God who is not held back from us is I give him all of me, all of the time, no matter where I am and no matter what I'm doing. My life is bent towards, God, I am your child, I am your servant, and I joyfully, with great gratitude, not trying to get something from you, but responding to what you've already given to me, I give you myself. Now, it is very possible for us to respond to God with just a really bad attitude. That I don't give to God out of joy and out of gratitude. I just give out of duty. I give out of just kind of a begrudging attitude of like, fine, (laughs) if this is what what my lot in life is, then I guess go ahead and take me, God. There's got to be something in us that when we consider and sit with the mercies of God that has been demonstrated to us, we come to him joyfully. Do you know that Christ went to the cross joyfully? Do you know that he endured separation from God the Father as he took on the sin of the world on his shoulders? Do you know that he did it joyfully, knowing the impact that that was going to have on you and me? Hebrews says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's amazing to me that Jesus did the cross with joy. Anyone ever give you a gift? And you know as they gave it to you, they just had a, a terrible attitude. They just gave it to you because you gave them a gift they just gave it to you because, you know, they were supposed to. And they kind of gave it to you and they're like, here, I don't really want to give this to you, but fine, take it. And you could see that in their eyes. You could see that in just their demeanor. Does that ever happen to you? Well, I know when that's happened to me, I've never actually said this, but I'm thinking this. Keep your gift. I don't want it. What do I want with your gift? Keep it for yourself. Like if you're not going to give it out of a sense of just joy and gratitude and gratefulness or celebration for whatever the the event might be, just keep it. And I have a feeling that we do approach God with this attitude of we're not coming to God with great joy and delight. We're coming just kicking our feet. This is something that the Old Testament uh, really spoke to is when people would bring their sacrifices they could bring literally their sacrifice, put it on the altar, but they could have a really bad attitude. And the problem was not with the gift, but the problem was with the giver. And so sometimes the issue is not with the gift, as it were. The issue is with the heart condition of the one who's bringing it. And so as I come to God and I offer myself, I present myself in light of His mercy to me, I do it just in humility. I do it in joy, in joy and gratitude. I like how David, King David, in the Old Testament said, "'You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise.'" King David clearly understood not only that his sin was great, but that he was a great sinner, and what he needed most was mercy. And so he received the mercy of God in his life, and he came to God in gratitude, in contrition, in humility, saying, God, I don't even deserve to come to you, but I'm coming to you in response to what you have done for me. As we offer or present ourselves to God, Paul is saying, as you do that, that's worship. This is your spiritual act. And this phrase, spiritual act, another way to understand that is, This is a logical or this is an appropriate response to God. Anything else is not logical. Anything else is not appropriate. The logical or appropriate, the spiritual act of worship, the appropriate response to God is that we would present all of ourselves to God, all of ourselves. God, I'm yours. So thankful for what you have done for me. Now, Practically speaking, what does a life offered to God at all times and all places, what does it look like? Okay? It is not a life of conformity, it's a life of progressive transformation. And this is what Paul teaches in the last verse we'll cover, Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what it practically looks like to offer or present myself, all of myself to God as a spiritual act of worship, Paul says, don't do this, but do this. So a life offered to God is a life that looks pretty different. Okay, so I think an obvious question would be, For those of you who know the mercies of God, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who get the cross, who get the mercies of God, what about you sets you apart? What about you and how you live and how you think and how you act, how you behave, how you treat others, how you think of yourself? Like, what is different about you? What sets you apart? because he says in Romans 12 two, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And if you're confused as to the, what the pattern of the world is, well, the pattern of the world is really self-worship. The pattern of the world, as it were, it's a life marked by self-worship, meaning what matters most is my happiness. What matters most is my comfort. What matters most is my convenience, my pleasure, my needs. What matters most is me. That's the pattern of of this world. And unfortunately, if you live a life where you are conforming to the world around you, do you know what the first thing to go is? Your character. If you are a person who conforms to the world, its standards, its values, if you conform to that which is around you, the first thing that will go from you is your character. Because conforming is all about compromising. You know what God's standard is, but ah, it's so much easier if I just do this. I see this, honestly, a lot in relationships. I know we're not supposed to live together and physically be together until we get married, but it's just so much easier if we could just be together. We'll save on rent. We'll kind of learn each other. Well, yeah, that's, that's the standard of the world. But God's standard is higher. And so when we conform to what the world says, what the values of the world are, the first thing that will go from you is your character. And you no longer reflect Christ. You're just a reflection of the world around you. I like how Spurgeon said it. He said, character is always lost when a high ideal is sacrificed on the altar of conformity and popularity. I just want to fit in. If, that is your, if, that's, if that's you, if that's what you say, that you just want to fit in. I just want people to think highly of me. I just want to be liked. Well, you might be liked, but you'll have little character. You might fit in, but you'll have no character that reflects the person of Christ. So again, what looks different about you? if a life offered to God, presented to God, all of me, to all of God, it has to start with, I'm not conforming to the pattern of this world. I'm conforming to Christ, to his standards, his priorities, his values. And I think, just to be clear, uh, there's been, I think, in Christian circles over the last many, many years, when people think about conformity, they're like, well, okay, then I just won't, I won't drink beer, or I'll at least I'll stop at one or two, or I won't watch this movie, or I won't listen to this type of music. So we cut external things from our lives, because we think conforming is, well, I just will escape the things of the world, and I just won't do that. Or there are people who have gone as far as to say, well, I need to, in order not to conform, I just literally need to move away from the world and, and create my own little commune. That's not what God is interested in. He's talking about an internal transformation, an internal renewing. And as Paul says in Romans 12, uh, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So another question for you, what are you feeding your mind with? We might not like this, but whatever you are feeding your mind with, going to show up in how you live. So this, it does matter what you watch. It does matter what you think about. It does matter what you dwell on. It does matter what you listen to. All of these things are shaping and forming us. So it's a question of what is your mind feeding on right now? And because Paul says, don't conform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I can attest that there is a direct correlation in my life when I'm neglecting God's word to what my spiritual formation and transformation looks like. When I am allowing in my mind just anything and everything, I'm, I just look like people around me. But when I am filling my mind and bending my mind around God's word, you know what happens to me I start walking in the ways of God. I start understanding the will of God. And I start growing in being a godly man. I can honestly tell you when I have had seasons of not being in God's word, where God's word is shaping and forming my mind. Man, I am a mess of a man. I'm confused about who I am. I'm confused about who God is. I'm confused about what God's doing. Why? Because I've got so many other things filling my mind. And whatever is filling my mind is going to show up in the way that I live my life. So this is not just, you got to read your Bible once a day. This is, no, God has given us his word so that his word would renew life in us. So that we would understand God, his ways, his purposes, his will. And we would grow in godliness, in Christ likeness. I will make you a promise. If you never pick up God's word, you will not look like Christ. It is impossible to grow in Christ's likeness void of God's word being formed in you. Why? Because you don't know what Christ looks like. You don't know how to think godly thoughts because you're not filling your mind, your heart, with God's word. God's word is such a gift, it's not a burden. I find it interesting when I ask people, man, just how's your time with God? In scripture. Man, you Michael, you don't get it. I'm so busy. You're a pastor and you can just sit around and, and pray sixteen hours a day and then and then read eight hours a day. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what my life looks like. <laughs> but you ask simple questions. Well, how much TV have you watched today? How much time have you spent on Facebook? Hmm, let me do the math. I'm not a good math guy, but that was three hours. You're gonna tell me that you can and I'm not making a statement against Facebook or the internet or you know movies and TVs but i am saying all of us have time to allow god's word to shape and form us it's just a question of will it actually be a priority for you that's it's not an issue of time it's an issue of value it's an issue of priority before i start my day by getting on the internet and checking how many people like something or didn't like something Maybe we should start our day by just checking, God, what do you have to say to me today about you? God, what do you have to say to me today about me? God, what do you have to say to me today about the situation or the circumstance that I find myself in? Bless you. I mean, a lot of people who say they want to see change in their life, genuine transformation, but they seek transformation through changing a few details of their external circumstances. If you want to see transformation in you, if you want to be where a year from now where you'd hope to be, maturing and growing, looking a little bit more like Jesus than you do today, well, renew your mind by shaping your mind in God's word. I mean, a lot of people who say they genuinely want to understand God's will, but they seek God's will apart from God's word. It just doesn't work. Let me ask you a question. Why on earth would God reveal to you something as precious as his plan, as his purpose, as his will for you, if your character doesn't look anything, it's not been conformed at all to the person of Christ? Why would God give you something as precious as his will if your character is just unwilling to bend to what God's word has to say? But I want to know, should should I date this person? Should I get married to this person? Should I work here? Should I do this? Should I move here? I'm not saying those are unimportant details, but God is a lot more concerned about you, your personhood being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And this is the beautiful thing as we renew our minds, transformation, progressive transformation, meaning we look different every day. We're growing, we're maturing, something happens to us is that we begin to understand God's good, God's perfect, and God's pleasing will. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this here, but if you really want to know God's good, perfect, and pleasing will, then begin by renewing your mind around God's word and allow God's word to begin to shape and form your character into Christ's likeness You'll be able to discern God's will. So if you're struggling to know God's will, it's not because God's like, ha, ha, I'm not telling you squat. <laughs> it's because God's probably saying, you know what? You got character issues. Let's work on your character because what I would reveal to you, you couldn't. your character couldn't handle it. Do you know that Jesus never asked God what to do? Jesus didn't walk around and was like, well, What do you think, Father? What should I do today? He walked in such close connection and communion with God that he never was praying, like, Oh, God, would you please? I just don't know if I should be with this person or if I should invest in these men. He was just so closely connected. And you'd be like, Well, that's Jesus. Do you know that that's the kind of connection, the intimacy that we are called to have with the Father? Why? because Jesus made it possible. So rather than spending and wasting energy and conversations on what do I do, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do, bend your mind so that your life will be shaped and formed around the character of Christ. And as your character grows, your communion will grow. Your understanding of God's good, perfect, and pleasing will, will be revealed. This is the appropriate response, the logical response to the mercies of God. We offer all of ourselves, all of the time, to God. And as we offer ourselves, what we're doing practically day to day is our minds are getting renewed by the word of God that we are spending time, investing, making it a priority. And it is a privilege, by the way, that we can even have God's word. Is how you are living today, reflecting to God and those around you just how great the mercies of God are. I loved walking through Romans chapter one through eleven, but I love the start of Romans twelve because of God's mercies, and they are many and they are great. Live in light of the mercies of God in your life, and if you're here today and you're like I, I've never experienced the mercy of God in my life. And I would suggest then you probably haven't met Jesus yet because Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love and the mercy that God has demonstrated to us. Read one last verse from Titus. It says this, chapter three, but when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. God didn't look at us and say, wow, you guys are doing a great job. I'll save you because of your works. No, it was because of his love, his kindness, all rooted in his mercy. My prayer for me, for you, for this church is that the mercies of God would begin to transform how we live with God, understanding God, understanding ourselves, and understanding the world we live in. I want to give you a chance just to spend some time quietly reflecting on the mercies of God, reflecting on God's goodness to you reflecting on God's love for you. And as we do every single week at Genesis, we celebrate communion. If you are a Christian, this is a time for you, especially today, to come and celebrate communion with deep gratitude and deep joy, saying, Jesus, thank you for the mercy that has been given to me. And if you're not a Christian, know it is our heart's desire that you would become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Confess him as Savior and Lord. Receive his mercy in your life today by confessing, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and confessing that Jesus is.